1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. If you'd open your Bibles there, we'll start at verse 1. We'll get there shortly, so just hang on to it, and we'll find our way to it. So as I was talking with Wes about this week and the text that we're to be considered, as I was considering my schedule and availability, I committed to 1 Peter chapter 3. I made a joke that I'll have my opportunity to anger most of the church, as this text, along with others that deal with wifely submission, tend to draw the ire from many. The distaste for these verses certainly comes from an unbelieving world and their commitment to feminism and the destruction of the family. But sadly, these poisons have seeped into most churches where pastors are busy placating and pandering to those who have been conditioned by the unbelieving world by twisting these verses so badly that they no longer mean what the plain word conveys. So we had a laugh. And then we thank God. Because as offensive as the plain truth is to the world and most nominal believers and those who have a superficial attachment to Jesus, our family here has been receptive to the hard truths. We have found that the harder the topic, the more grateful those in the barn are for them. Having heard those truths, unvarnished and unqualified. So I have to say, it is truly amazing that this thing happens, and it should no longer surprise us. So today we're going to yet again unashamedly proclaim the truth of God's Word. As we've already discovered last couple weeks, we chafe against submission. And this world hates so much more the submission of a wife to her husband. We love the Word of God, all of it. We here know that if we run into something in God's revelation that we struggle with, the problem is with us and not the truth of the Word of God. So the Word must change and transform us. We do not transform and twist the Word to suit our sinful predilections and satisfy cultural demands. So we've spent much time looking at all the ways Men and husbands have failed, and today we're going to consider the specific ways in which women and wives are to be obedient. So women have left the place that God circumscribed for them, and men, as we've considered, have weakly and effeminately allowed this to happen. Men have hearkened to the voice of their wives. Sounds familiar. Like Adam and Abraham with detrimental consequences. And women are guilty of the coaxing so that the men could be guilty of the hearkening. As we've considered before, God designed men to lead and women to follow. This order has been blurred with a perpetual striving for reversal. Remember, men are always leading whether they want to or not whether they are conscious of it or not. They're either leading well or leading poorly. Men abdicate, women strive to dominate. Men have weakly and effeminately allowed themselves to be manipulated. They have hearkened again to the voice of their wives and we see clearly the resultant effects by looking around us. Just as husbands were created to be leaders, wives are created to be followers. They're not created to bear the brunt of husbandly headship nor are men created to follow submissively. No matter how many times we dance obediently when the politically correct music plays or give all the right answers to their egalitarian catechism, this nonsense cannot work. And the more people nod and smile at the absurdity, the more we slide into dissatisfaction and disaster. So men are always steering the ship. A course may be charted by actors that aren't at the helm, But the helmsman decides what course he will steer. The feminist movement could not have sailed us into the port of our present insanity had men steered true and women stayed true. And again, we've already challenged our men in here in various ways, and we will be challenged again next week. 
So I will not commit the same mistake that many do by making the text that is specifically for our women somehow about men. Commonly in sermons that specifically involve injunctions to women or when dealing with ways that women sin specifically, people are uncomfortable because of our secular conditioning and they decide to take the route of men are bad and here are all the ways that men sin and this is the only reason that women ever do anything wrong. We tiptoe around the injunctions and the sins of women. I personally think a part of this tempering comes from a place that is honorable. As we as men are innately inclined to soften the blow and absorb as much as we can for our women, because we are protectors and responsibility takers by God's design. But what happens more frequently, I believe, because of the capitulation to ideologies that come from the pit of hell, we've been trained never to speak confidently and directly about the place that God has ordained and designed for His creation, woman. Because it's hard. And it comes with backlash. Consequence, social, financial. The institutional inertia of generations of feminism has left most people in a situation that looks nothing like the biblical ideal because so many families are so well outside of the bounds that God has circumscribed, it is easier to deal with the situations we find ourselves in and make justifications and allowances for them. To fit the text to the times and or the particular circumstances that are most prevalent in our congregation. We start to make justifications and interpret the text in light of biblical abnormalities such that they become the sermon. We focus on the exceptions that refute and do violence to the rule. The pressure to skew, twist, and subordinate God's clear text for His women is strong. To show honor and deference to egalitarian ideologies that again come from the pit instead of honoring our women with the truth. Commanded to honor them. We're necessarily submissive and compliant to the God-hating world's carefully curated nonsense instead of boldly thundering out the truth of the Word. So today we're going to deal with wives and commands to them only as that is what God in His providence has served us at this time. But we would have neglected to set the table for the main course properly if we did not take a quick look and review of that which has brought us to this point. So from here on out, exposition. Since God's command, since God commands, excuse me, men to exposit the scriptures, we fail our women when we do not teach the whole counsel of God. It's a two-edged sword and it cuts exactly where it needs to. So may we here not be found intentionally trying to blunt the edges because we think it's too hard to be borne by our enlightened age. So we've all gazed in puzzled amazement at the absurdities of egalitarian feminism. Everyone is equal. They're basically the same, men and women. And this next example is a sad result of feminism itself. But in law enforcement, physical fitness test requirements for employment, male and female are not the same. Females are required only to do a fraction of the PT that the men are required to do. Equality is demanded, but men die at a much higher rate, and their life expectancy is much less than that of females. Should we let men work less with more pay to lessen their stress and extend their life so that women and men can all die equally? Of course not. That equality doesn't matter because it's absurd. This hypothesis of equality in that regard fails the test of reality. We are different. We are not the same. What is being said and what is, is do not match. The rhetoric doesn't correspond to reality. Men are not able to be women, nor are women able to be men. God has designed lanes for us to stay in, and these are all lies, and things only work when done God's way. So more examples. We've all heard the stories and seen it ourselves. And all could here could probably give them to us. Our own personal experience. Where we see our God-given nature that doesn't match the narrative. The feminist who speaks at the rally to the crowd of adoring beta boy allies 
leaves with the burly motorcycle riding alpha male after the seminar is over. Her manipulation has worked on all the beta boys who she has persuaded to continue to emasculate themselves, but she hops on the back of the bike with the guy who tells her no, who decides where they're gonna eat for lunch and probably isn't going to win any sensitivity contests. The cute girl in school who tells the nice, docile, malleable, doting underclassman who would eat glass to make her happy how much she loves his sensitivity. And then she ends up ditching him for the indifferent, jerkish upperclassman who forgets to call at the agreed upon time. So this is certainly not a commendation of general jerkish, indifferent behavior, but it certainly does tell us something about the creational nature of women. What women are looking for innately is headship, authority, a leader. We've spent several years teaching our boys how to be more like girls, and that includes in the church, teaching them that assertion, aggression, and strength are not to be tolerated, that they would do well to watch their little sister, Susie, and do as she does with all passivity and agreeableness. Milk toast men. This is why we have Susie chasing after the perceived, most likely counterfeit, strength, and supposed authority of the motorcyclist and upperclassmen because she has slim pickings everywhere else. Susie does sincerely enjoy the one who gushes all over her, and she also enjoys him doing whatever she wants and hearkening to her every whim to a point. For she has a creational, creational nature at play as well. As she continues to get her way in every single thing with her adoring devotee's docile consent, she is satisfied with her ability to control everything to her desired end, and at the same time, she is discouraged and disenchanted by her ability to lead and control everything. By God's design, women desire to be led by a strong, competent, protective, skillful, wise man. Women were created to be led, covered, protected, and provided for by man. They were created to help and in so doing, follow the lead of the one who is easy to follow. She's created this way. She's made in the image of God, and this is her creational nature. She was made from the man for the man. But we all remember Genesis 3, specifically verse 16. The fall occurs, and the curse is applied. After which... The woman's desire would be for her husband, as we've considered, to assume his position as head, to strive against him, to usurp his authority. She would not be able to do so, but the desire would be continually present. Instead of obeying and submitting to her husband with all deference and respect, she would now strive and struggle antagonistically against his headship and his creational authority. So here we have what I like to call the paradoxical nature of her nature. The paradoxical nature of her nature. Existing simultaneously within the female is the desire to be led and the desire to lead. The desire to direct and the desire to be directed. One desire comes from the flesh in the fall and the other from the father's forming and fashioning her nature as female. But we've already considered, with the examples prior, only one of these desires works for her as God designed. The other does not. As seen in the 16 push-ups somehow equals 50 push-ups because we're the same. So herein lies the problem. And now we see it clearly. Hopefully. We have always seen it and certainly experienced it in our own lives and selves. As was well taught the last two weeks, we all hate submission. Well done, brother. As we all strive to be autonomous agents, freeing ourselves from God and being our own God. But this chafing and kicking against authority, we see specifically magnified in the relationship of a wife and her husband in marriage. The New Testament several times commands wives 
to submit to, respect, and honor their husbands. The reason that this is so many times brought up to wives is not because every female believer was submitting to her husband with all deference and respect flawlessly all over Judea, Asia, Rome, etc. in the first century. Wives were commanded to do these things because our writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew exactly what we've just considered. The paradoxical nature of her nature. They are, just as we are today, commanded and reminded to submissively respect and honor their husbands because our writers knew, again, that wives have a tendency not to do so. They'd read their Old Testaments. They read Genesis. And they were alive and breathing in the sinful world that we all occupy. The same antagonistic striving against headship existed in post-fall wives in the first century as much as it does today. So wives struggle in this way. In the spirit, they are to put to death the flesh which seeks to lead, control, manipulate their husbands and submit to the nature and design of Almighty God. So we understand the wife, the kicking against husbandly authority. But we often get caught in the theological stratosphere when considering a biblical truth and forget to make on-the-ground application. Sometimes it's easier that way. On the ground, on the plane of reality in everyday life. Theologically and theoretically, we can dissect and further discover the nuance and richness of the biblical doctrine of submission, how it adds richness and depth to the grand narrative of Scripture. But it's a different story when a husband says, no. And the wife does not like that answer. Wait a minute. There must be an addendum or loophole in there somewhere that I can find to use to my advantage. Today, we're going to be as straightforward and practical as possible when dealing with this. Talking to our people and hearing their questions and concerns, we find that practicality is what is most needed and desired. How do I take those biblical commands and how do I apply them in my life? And we've had many generations of families not doing it God's way, and most of our women have been left with nothing to imitate or to emulate. So let's do it God's way. As those who love the Lord, we are new creations. Amen? Being made new continually to delight in the law of the Lord, to enjoy His commandments because they are not burdensome. Wives are commanded to submit, to honor, to respect, to obey, and to show deference lovingly to their husbands. And we believe God. And we trust that everything that comes from His mouth is for our good and His glory. We can trust Him. We can trust Him. Do we really believe we can trust Him? As we've talked before, we are perfectly aware, and you said this in our opening situation that we had about the family, and we'll get right back to it. We are perfectly aware that there are many situations in marriages that are exceptions. Yes. And since we know we do not get at the role enough, we're going to make the sermon about the clear teaching of this text and deal with exceptions on a case-to-case basis. Because most people will point to extreme cases that certainly exist and where submission to husbands would be a violation of the commands of God. Yes. Those do exist. But the proclivity, proclivity excuse me, to immediately jump to exceptions when hearing about submission indicates how apt we are to struggle and contend with submission. So principally, we don't want our people to grasp at exceptions as a justification for regarding the clear text of Scripture. So we're going to deal with the clear text of Scripture. So let's get into the text. First, Peter 3, starting at verse 1. And the whole, and then we'll break it up. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, 
they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. I love this next verse. Which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, little L. And you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Peter has given us clear instruction in this passage. There are certainly many other passages that corroborate and recapitulate what is being said here. Here are a few. This is not exhaustive. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Ephesians 5.33 However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husbands. Colossians 3.18 Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Again, this is not exhaustive, but helpful. So we know that many hear these words and do not like them. Something in us kicks against these commands. We hear them, but deep down, we don't feel at bottom that we can actually trust God in this manner. Do we really believe we can trust Him? That's the question, isn't it? These are not qualified commandments. These injunctions are not optional, nor are they conditional. This is important because many times in situations where submission and honor are not given, there are often specific conjunctions we find in the statements of justification. We've all heard them, we've all said them. If, but, and because. If, but, and because. If he were better at X, then most certainly I would be better at Y. Because he is always, fill in the blank, I cannot help myself from doing what I do. I would submit to my husband, but he is not, we can all fill in the blank. But wives are not commanded to submit to your husband if he is perfect. Wives are not commanded to honor their husband only when he's honorable. Wives are not commanded to obey their husbands only when it is something they are already inclined and happy to do. They are commanded to submit to their husband because he is their husband, their head. Their God-given authority. And at the top, we're not submitting for our sake, wives. Not submitting just for our husband's sake. For selfish motivational purposes so that maybe if I just employ this formula, things will go the way I want. But we're submitting because we're commanded to do so. And yes, in God's grace, there will be blessing that follows due to that obedience. But we don't obey because of the blessing. We obey because we love our Lord and the blessings are the gracious gifts of that obedience. We have to trust Him and obey His commandments because they are not burdensome. Verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband. Excuse me, 3. It is important because it limits wives in their submission. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. This is limiting. 
Peter says, be subject to your own husband. Wives are not to be indiscriminately subject to every husband or every man solely because he has an XY chromosome. Women are subject solely to their own husbands. Wives are not to submit to other men as their heads. This is gracious in that it would be impossible to submit to every man solely because he is one. This certainly makes the duty easier and less complicated, but we know that it's not always simple. It would seem that it would be very easy to submit just to one person. But often there are times when women find themselves submitting to other men in ways that are subtle and maybe even truly inadvertent. Wives are to be oriented to one man, not oriented to their way and seeking out other authorities that validate it. This appeal to the authority of another head most commonly takes the form of searching out a man who validates your opinion over and against your husband's. There are often times where ladies find themselves in agreement with another man on an issue. Maybe he has validated her notion of a certain something, but her husband has a different opinion on the matter. When this happens, many times wives are quick to look to other men, other husbands, teachers, etc. to confirm their opinion. They necessarily pit the authority of another against their husband's authority. When this is done, the very real danger of looking at another man as your head is present. And again, often this is done by continuing to ask the same question or appeal to another man's opinion after your husband has already given you an answer on the matter. This is a common issue that creates strife and discord, and we know it. Wives have only one head, their own husbands. Next verse. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see a respectful and pure conduct. This is one of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible. Peter is saying that in the role of wife and helper, the most powerful thing you can do as a means to the possible end of salvation of your unbelieving husband, an unbelieving husband, is to quietly submit to him with honor, deference, and respect. If the quiet, gentle submission of a wife can be the means to the salvation of a lost husband's soul, how much more, afiorte, how much more could obedience in the home of believing couples bring the sweet aroma of blessing, peace, and joy that grows exponentially? This further underscores the fact that submission and respect are not conditional or qualified. Here we have a husband who does not follow the Word of God. So one can infer that this man certainly does not hold himself to the same loving standards that the Word of God commands him to. He may be a poor communicator, a derelict provider, a deficient leader, a negligent father, and unrestrained in his personal life, etc., etc., etc. But yet Peter tells believing wives to win their husbands without a word by their pure and respectful conduct. Again, it has to be said, Peter does not relieve the believing spouse of her biblical duty to submit to the God-delegated authority of her unbelieving husband. He conveys the complete opposite, doesn't he? If a believing wife is to submit to, her, to submit to her unbelieving husband, how much more should a wife submit to her believing husband? And why is without a word so important and powerful here? We bristle and chafe at this, don't we? Here's the tough one. Can without a word really mean silence? Can I preach the gospel to my husband solely by quietly honoring and submitting to him? If my husband asks me to do something definitively, and I think it could be done better, should I not just argue against it one more time? Here's where our flesh comes in. That flesh from the curse that wants to control, to usurp, to lead, to strive against. The natural reaction is to fix him, to fix it, to convince, to argue 
for the thing you want. Because if he could only hear me out on this, I know he would come to understand to see it my way. If I speak or argue more convincingly, if I get upset to convey how passionate I I am about the specific area of his error, that will surely change things. Or I am upset and want to satisfy my flesh by just letting him have it. I know how to push his buttons, how to get under his skin. I know how to get the best of him. Applying the pressure right here will be sure to drive my point home and I will have won. Arguments vigorously employed and passionately communicated are sure to be the best tactic to change my husband or to get him to do what I think he should be doing. Many find the easiest thing to do is to argue for, assert, and or contradict their husband when they are disinclined to agree with him. We want it our way. Not just a female trait. It certainly may satisfy the flesh and may feel good in the moment, but the problem is that this never has the desired effect. It never has the desired result. One of two results ensue. Either the man has to engage with a rival leader necessarily in his home that he is responsible for and continues the power struggle, unwilling to give up his position as head, which oftentimes sadly escalates and has disastrous consequences, resulting most usually in divorce, separation, and destruction of families. Contempt and resentment from the husband, who constantly has to reassert his headship over and against his antagonistic wife, vying for control. Remember the curse. Her desire would be for her husband, and he would rule or lord it over her. Or, or he is emasculated, and for expediency and for the sake of peace, he acquiesces always to the wife and her control. He is the helmsman in our previous metaphor, who, head down and tail tucked submissively, steers whichever way he is told. Contempt and resentment result here as well. He is emasculated and leading poorly while being directed by his wife. Remember, he's always leading. He is always steering. She who was created to follow the lead of a man resents him for allowing her to emasculate him. Her creational nature. Again, God has designated one leader of the family, that being the man. We see what happens When women are antagonistic, resistant, and insist on their own way over and against their husband. This vicious merry-go-round ride never ends. And adds statistically to a 50% plus, I think it's more today, you could correct me on that, divorce rate in society, including the church. Including the church. All because we have bought the lie of an unbelieving culture who encourages us to submit to our sinful nature and ignore God. Do not let your adorning be external. This is beautiful. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Which in God's sight is very precious. So here in this passage, we have the phrase without a word, along with the disposition of quietness, gentleness. Why in the word of God do we have so many references to women comporting themselves quietly, gently and submissively? The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Peter writes, certainly we know that this text is exhorting women of God to be modest in their appearance, not to be ostentatious or to accentuate and highlight themselves for the lustful eyes that fill this sinful world. Our women are not to do that. A beautiful woman is certainly physically attractive, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. She must modestly cultivate and accentuate for her husband or future husband. That's fine. Certainly, perfectly fine. Her husband will enjoy it. 
Physical beauty fades, and age and entropy do what they do to the feminine face and form. But true beauty is more than just the golden ratio and aesthetics. That which is beautiful and precious and does not fade is within, not without. We know charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. She is beautiful and very precious. Imperishable beauty is something you are, not what you look like. Peter is juxtapositioning juxtapositioning the preoccupation with the cultivation of physical beauty alone over and against the beauty that is not subject to age, wrinkles, and the hard work family and children require. This text is not telling women to avoid beautifying themselves physically. Simply that adorning the outside is not the pinnacle of beauty. Women are to be after true beauty. To adorn themselves with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And look at the next verse. I love it. Which in God's sight is very precious. Do we believe it? We've heard Wes talk about the Reformation expression, Coram Deo, living before the face of God, with our chief desire being to obey and honor and please Him. So we don't live our lives to please ourselves, nor the sinful world, and their demands, insane as they are. We want to be after what God says is very precious to Him. Our God knows that a gentle, quiet spirit is the exact opposite of what this sinful world promotes for women and what their sinful proclivities desire. We don't live for the world and its norms. We live to please God. This is very precious and in in His sight. Something that is precious is rare. It's scarce. It holds extreme value. When we look out in the world at the loud, aggressive, antagonistic, obnoxious, hostile, immodest, disrespectful disaster that is considered normal and desirable for women, we understand that their currency is hyperinflated and has contributed to the crash of the family and society. That which is valuable, that which is scarce, that which is rare and precious is what we are after. Women who trust God and not themselves or the conventional worldly wisdom, who know it would be easy to satisfy the flesh, to be and act exactly as the world and their sinful nature would want them to, yet suppress and quell that desire for the sake of obedience are beautiful, scarce, and very precious in an imperishable, never fading way in the sight of God. Powerful. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The adorning we were introduced to in the previous verses, that which includes a gentle and quiet spirit, very precious in the sight of God, is further specified here. To be like the women who hoped in God, to be daughters of Sarah, how does the text tell us women are to adorn themselves? Here is what denotes a daughter of Sarah in the text. One that is included with the holy women who hope in God. They are submissive to their husbands. They do that which is good. And they do not fear anything that is frightening. Submissive to their husbands, do that which is good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. They can do these things without fear because they are women who, quote, hope in God. They know that He will never leave nor forsake them, that He is orchestrating all things for their good and for His glory, that His commandments are for their thriving and the flourishing of their family. That he is sovereign over all things and all relationships, including her marriage. 
in which she renders submission and respect to her husband, who answers to God terrifyingly. And they trust God in his word and obey. So this verse tells us how Sarah obeyed Abraham. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Not only did Sarah actively obey Abraham bodily, she went over and above by verbalizing her respect and submission to his authority, calling him Lord. She communicated her submission to him. There are many ways women can communicate respect and honor to their husbands. I like the flow of the text here because it teaches us something, as the, the word always does. But it is easy enough for Sarah to obey Abraham by simply doing what he asks, isn't it? Any husband can ask something of his wife and the wife do what he asks, but the manner in which she carries it out is also important. She can do it begrudgingly and reluctantly, which communicates enough on its own, with few words being spoken. But not only did Sarah obey Abraham, but in the obeying, she verbalized honor and respect so as to communicate her willingness to obey God by obeying her husband. There are certainly various applications there for us today, and wives seek to communicate respect and honor as they submit to their husbands in 2022, so we'll explore them a little bit. Let us consider these practical ways that wives can submit to their husbands. Speaking commonsensically about the truth and definition of respect and honor and submission in today's world feels like a revolutionary act. Isn't that what Orwell said? As we consider and apply the actual definitional understanding of honor, deference, respect, and submission, we are sure, we are guaranteed, it will happen. We will draw the ire and vitriol of a God-hating world, and that's okay. Because we're promised it would happen. In fact, our Lord and Savior says, when it does, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, because you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. So... The practicalities. What does it mean to submit honor and respect, obey your husband? How? In previous generations, we still had vestiges of customs and traditions which communicated honor, respect, and deference. And this would be things like dad sits at the head of the table. He drives on family trips, husband. Husband says the table grace in his own home with his family. He's got a special cup, a special chair. Wife makes, or in the South, this is new to me, wife fixes him a plate. She doesn't make him. She fixes him a plate at mealtimes and family gatherings. And on and on and on and on. And I'm sure that everybody here has their own customs and traditions that they would show honor with in their own families and in their own situations. But all these things indicated that the husband filled a position that was one of authority. These are all good and helpful things and worthy of being instituted in homes today. There are many ways you can communicate to your husband and your entire family that he is the head. If you aren't doing these things, incorporate them. We often forget that here respect is a verb. Many times the mistake is made that a wife must feel as if her husband is worthy of respect before she can render it. The issue here is that, again, these commandments are not qualified, nor are they conditional. Wives are not to respect their husbands only when they are respectable or when wives feel as if they respect them. Even when the feeling is not yet present, it's still to be shown. God has created your husband to need respect. Respect and honor is what nourishes him. In the same way that women need love, tenderness, communication to fuel and charge them, men require the honor and respectful submission of their wives. It is necessary. And wives are to be the chief source of that respect by God's design. Men are providers, protectors, objective takers. And the problem solvers, they are the doers. Acknowledging and admiring their doing and activity in support and protection of the family is tantamount to loving them well. 
This is real. Acknowledge them for their hard work, their provision, their skill, their ability. This is very important and brings much blessing. Respect should always characterize speech, behavior, demeanor, and conduct toward and about your husband. Speak to him with respect, especially bringing issues and concerns to his attention. He's not one of the children. Do not demean, degrade, or patronize him. Certainly not intentionally, and be careful not to do it unintentionally. Be sure to respect him by not publicly contradicting him. This communicates much to him. One way in which disrespect is communicated is oftentimes through jest. Wives tend to make fun in light of their husband's shortcomings and deficiencies by poking fun at or lightly deriding them in front of others. This is not helpful. There are certainly reasonable exceptions, again, to these general rules of respects, such as life, limb, or property that are in imminent danger and can be communicated with respect. But again, grasping immediately at exceptions tells us something. Do not nag, badger, or harass your husband. Proverbs 27, 15. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. There's a lot more, but one's enough. Water torture is equated to the nagging of one's wife. Honor your husband's final decisions because he does have the final say in matters. Especially, especially if you disagree with him after he has listened to your input. When he asks something of you, try to do it promptly and joyfully. Courtesy and thoughtfulness in the small everyday tasks communicate gratitude for his position before God as head. Be careful not to speak in a denigrating way to or about your husband. Language is not limited to voice and tone. Disrespect is certainly present in demeanor and body language as well. Sometimes more so. The heart of her husband safely trusts him. Ask him first. Get his permission. Whether that be standing or specific, this communicates much respect. Disrespect and dishonor towards your husband is always disobedience. By being diligent to render honor in these ways, your status as children of Sarah is immediately recognized by the watching world. It is seen. There are many more examples that communicate respect and submission, and it certainly may seem odd that a young man with little experience of a seven-year marriage and only two small children would be enumerating these seemingly obvious, seemingly obvious examples of submission and respect as if they were arcane and secret. If it does seem odd to you, great. We all need you. We all need you. Those of you out there who understand these things as self-evident, we need you to get with the rest of our younger believers and teach them. Older women, teach our younger women to love their husbands and children. Titus 2. There are some out there who haven't been marinated in feminism and can do what is good, as our text says, by sharing all that your obedience has produced in your marriage and family. Please do it. So in conclusion, we know that there is a striving that occurs between the old woman, the flesh, and the new creation in Christ. Because of the curse, the flesh seeks to break the bonds of the authority God has placed the wife under, to strive against, to manipulate, to usurp. You are filled with the Spirit of God. He is sufficient for you to obey over and against the sinful flesh that hangs like a body of death that you will be delivered from. Amen? So have you been acting in a way that is chronically disrespectful to your husband? If the answer is yes, repent and communicate that to him. Do you want to enjoy the blessings that come with obedience to the Lord in this matter? As a daughter of Sarah, taking your place among the holy women who hope in God, adorn yourself with that which in God's sight is very precious. 
Trust not in your ability to manipulate and control your husband, but trust God to work powerfully in your home and family by and through the means that he has prescribed. There are few things that have the power to stir and galvanize a man more than a woman saying, in word and in deed, I trust you. I put myself in your hands. Lead me. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Listen to this verse. As the church submits to Christ, so the wife submits to her husband. You are to be as submissive to your husband as the church, which you are a part of, is to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in a very real sense, one can tell how submissive you are to the Lord by seeing how submissive you are to your husband. This picture of Christ and His bride illustrated by a husband and his wife is so very powerful that Titus 2 tells us that we are to do these things so that the Word of God may not be blasphemed. We're to do these things so that the Word of God may not be reviled. An obedient, submissive wife in marriage is a real gospel example to a lost and dying world. Her obedience to Christ, exhibited by her submission to her husband, is a gospel message that does not even require words. That is powerful. May we trust God for His ways are perfect. Let's pray.